Greetings, I'm Dr. Anthony Smith of Alashay Center for Enrichment and welcome to Black Folks Do Therapy, where we endeavor to challenge you to think critically about your mental health and overall wellness. Our goal is to inspire you to align your actions and values so that you might live your life fully 86,400 seconds every single day. We do this in part by asking questions and raising issues that you may not have previously considered. Ultimately, we encourage you to do those things that help you to live your best life consistently, always working towards balance. We're coming to you today from sunny Houston, Texas, and we're here with Dr. Shawanda Anderson, and we're going to talk about her practice, Neuropsychological Associates, and we're going to talk about what neuropsychology is and how she does what she does in her practice. So thanks for joining us and buckle in for the conversation. Thanks for joining us today. And Thank you for, for having me. Yes. Um, first, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and um, how, you come, how you came to be a psychologist. Okay. Um, I am originally from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I was born and raised there. The day I turned 17, I left there and never returned. Mm. Um, although I, I went to school in, in Louisiana. I am a Dillard University grad. Okay. Uh, from there, went to school at Northwestern. Um, and my doctorate is from Jackson State in Jackson, Mississippi. Okay. I, I'm married. I've been married for 20 years. I have two children. Um, I have, my daughter is 16. My son is 12. Mm. Um, and your question was, how did I get into psychology? I've thought about that for the last 30 years. Mm -hmm. um, I enjoyed a class in 10th grade and thought, maybe I could do this for a living. How, how do you make this into a living? Mm -hmm. uh, so kind of fell into it earlier. And my grandmother said, I don't think that that will be what you want. I don't think that would be a lucrative career. So I started off my career as pre-med. Mm -hmm. um, and did well, and did well pre-med. Right. Um, I started off pre-med too. <laughs> and, and then realized I didn't want to do 16-hour day. Right, right. Same <laughs> I didn't want to work in the hospital. Yeah. Um, after my first I year, my sleep. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh my gosh, I don't want to do this. But right. the mm -hmm. next semester I had to take another psychology course and realized that I, I really liked it and changed my major. Mm -hmm. um, my grandmother was not happy mm -hmm. um, and, didn't, and actually did not get to see me become a psychologist, but uh, I, I felt like that's where my heart was mm -hmm. and um, really never changed my major or my trajectory from psychology from sophomore year of college. No personal reasons. Um, I do have personal tragedies, but I don't know if they played into that decision. Um, maybe so, but I, I haven't found the connection in 30 plus years. Okay. Okay, so you've been doing this for thirty plus years now. I have, at least in the field. Um, so I've been I've been licensed in the state of Texas since two thousand and eight. Okay, I've been officially a clinical psychologist since two thousand and four. So okay. sixteen years, about okay. half that time. Okay, the other half was studying in school. Okay, okay, I got you. <laughs> I got you. All right, all right. So um, you, I'm intrigued. You left Baton Rouge. Why didn't you want to go back? Um, I like Baton Rouge. <laughs> I can't. I, I, because it's not home. It's uh -huh. home. 
and besides Baton Rouge, I didn't know very much else. I lived in Baton Rouge. I was raised in Baton Rouge. I have a wonderful family there. We didn't, the world is so much bigger than Baton Rouge. Sure. So mm. at 17, I had never been on a plane. Mm. I, I think I'd come to Houston once. Um, I'd never been in New Orleans. Um, it was just really small for me. Mm -hmm. And I knew that there was just way more world for mm -hmm. me then to mm -hmm. see. So I wasn't running from anything, per se. Right. Right. I probably was running to, okay. to okay. something. Um, my mother is still there. My sister is still there. Okay, so you go visit. N no. <laughs> they. This is a bigger city. So okay. they. my sister just left here. Yeah. Um, uh, my niece just came from Boston. So they, they come, they come to, to visit okay. me, right? Okay. I don't go home as much as I should. You okay. can you can wrap my knuckles later. <laughs> I don't. So you went to New Orleans in mm -hmm. Dillard. That's mm -hmm. a fabulous. I love Dillard's campus. That yeah. was when I was a senior in college. We did a spring break to New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And um, all of my friends had friends who were at Dillard, mm -hmm. including myself, and we became honorary students for a week, <laughs> and it was amazing. We hung out in the um, cafeteria, mm -hmm. we, we went to class, we were honorary <laughs> students for a week. We had such a great time on that campus. Um, I love it too. I hope my at least one of my children would consider it for mm -hmm. secondary yeah. education. I don't know if they are, but yeah, I'll push them in that direction. Very nurturing environment. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. oh yeah. Yeah. I loved it. Okay. And so you're there, you, you're in, getting into psychology, mm -hmm. and then you leave there and go to Northwestern. I did. And how was that? Um, not as nurturing. Um, <laughs> I actually, so I, I worked on my master's there. I actually didn't complete my master's there. Um, th there's a misconception that you have to have a master's degree to get a doctoral degree. And I knew that I always wanted to get the, the doctorate. And um, while in school, um, had applied for the next step. Um, and one of the professors at Jackson State said, because I, I was working on my thesis, wrapping that up, and he said, well, you know, I, I thought I would have to give away my spot because I wasn't, mm -hmm. I wasn't done. And um, he said, well, you don't have to finish your thesis. I was like, well, certainly I have to finish my thesis. He was like, well, you don't have to have a master's degree um, to get a doctoral degree. And mm -hmm. so I, I went back and forth with that idea because I, in the back of my head I always thought if I don't finish my doctorate I don't have a consolation prize. Mm -hmm. I don't have that terminal right. master's right. which to be honest with you was motivation mm -hmm. to to get it done. <laughs> <laughs> like you you, right. you, you, you got to finish this. Absolutely. Um, so I actually left Northwestern without the degree um, to pursue my doctoral degree. And you got into the program at Jackson State. I did. How was that? How was Jackson State's program? It was great. It, it was a newly developed program. In fact, when I enrolled, there were 10 of us, mm -hmm. um, two persons of color at a historically black college, university. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, and I don't, it, we were in the very beginning stages of APA accreditation, which was a huge thing, which is right. a, a, a big thing throughout my tenure there. Um, but I felt like the program was so good and so rigorous that I, in the back of my head, I was like, I know we'll get it. I know we'll get it. And if not, I'm pretty scrappy. Mm -hmm. I consider myself a hustler. <laughs> I figured, okay, I will just take the E triple. I'll, I'll find a way to circumvent this. Sure. And when I was on... Um, I think I was on my pre-doctoral internship in, in Provo, Utah, mm -hmm. which was also wonderful. Yeah. Wow. Provo, Utah. <laughs> um, we got the word that we got APA accreditation. Mm -hmm. um, it was, I think, 
our clinical supervisor at the time was Jeffrey Cassisi. Dr. Cassisi was instrumental in getting that program up and running, and it is still up and running, and I think one of two doctoral programs in the in the U.S. Um, that's at an HBCU. That is amazing. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know that. Yeah. I'm learning something new. I think Howard has one, <laughs> and yeah, no, Jackson Howard. State has the other. Okay. Mm -hmm. Very good. Mm -hmm. Very good. So, going through a doctoral program, you have the coursework, you have the, um, you reach a point where you have to take your comps, mm -hmm. and then you have to go on internship mm -hmm. for a year, yes. and then you have to get licensed. So, yes. um, just kind of describing the process so people understand all that goes into um, the training for you to become a psychologist. You talked about going to Provo, Utah for your internship. Yes. How did you make it out to Utah? And what was that experience like? <laughs> I, I think this whole career has been serendipitous. <laughs> I actually, um, so I, the match system was in effect. I think it still is. Mm -hmm. um, and I ranked four places. Two, which would be right here in the Metro Houston area, because my husband, my husband is a PV grad. Okay. So I thought. Which is Prairie View. Prairie View. Okay. Prairie View A&M yeah. University is just right up the road. Okay. Um, and I thought I'd I'd stay in this in this general area. We didn't have children, but we had dated long distance. I just married this man, and we didn't live in the same state. Right. Um, well, apparently, <laughs> <laughs> Provo um, ranked me higher than I ranked them, and I didn't sure. apply to too many places because of finances, really. Mm -hmm. um, but I am female and minority, and they don't have a lot of either mm -hmm. in in Utah. Um, I did a phone interview. I did not do a face-to-face -face So you hadn't interview. even been out there? No, wow. I had not. Okay. Um, but I will tell you that was probably one of the best experiences of my life. Even my husband loved Utah. Really? Um, so he moved out with you? At, it, so that was, to, it was 9-11. After 9-11, he did. Okay. He was here. He stayed here. But after 9-11, we sold the house. We said, okay, we're married now. Right. This is We need to live in the same state. Right, right. So he packed up everything and came. And came to Provo, okay. Utah, okay. which was um, Dr. Nancy Howes, Dr. Alan Chris, Dr. Stephen Chin. Those were my supervisors, and they were absolutely wonderful. If I needed to pick up that phone right now mm -hmm. and call and say, I need thus and so from you, what, what do you need? Mm -hmm. well, what can I do to help you? Some of my first, actually, my, my second and third publication came out of work that I did um, at Utah because they were just so instrumental in um, helping you learn and helping you understand and having you uh, build the time into the internship where you could write and 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 research. Um, I, I would do it again okay. in a heartbeat. Couldn't find no black hair care products. <laughs> <laughs> this is when I went natural for the first time. Um, I would have to drive an hour to Salt Lake City um, for any diversity, but I've never been treated so fairly in all my life. In and from there, I go to Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Which was quite the opposite, I imagine. Quite the opposite. Mm -hmm. um, but I, ha I have very good friends in Mississippi as well, just different cultures. And again, I'm a girl from Baton Rouge who had never been to either, right. either place. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was, it was definitely different. Okay. Now, by the time you got to Utah, mm -hmm. um, had you already decided to specialize in neuroscience? Psychology. I did. So that in that uh, pre-doctoral internship was specifically for neuropsychology. It's okay. called developmental neuropsychology, mm -hmm. meaning um, 
that whole spectrum. So there is there were six months where I, I saw children mm-hmm. and adolescents, mm-hmm. and then there were six months where I saw adults, and they were in a state hospital. Um, so I kind of saw the gamut of neuropsych, from traumatic brain injuries to autism to um, there was a forensic piece in mm-hmm. the in the adult side as well, mm-hmm. um, but it was specifically for neuropsychology. Okay, okay. So let's go back a bit and talk about how you decided to focus on neuropsychology. Um, my supervisor on my first practicum and on my two two year postdoc fellowship in neuropsychology is Dr. Mark Shearer. He's actually here in Houston in Tier. Mm-hmm. Uh, came to talk to a class. So my first year, second semester, first year at Jackson State, he did a presentation um, in the class and I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the time I was I was thinking of doing forensics. Um, the trend then was kind of either forensics or, or, or neuropsych. I actually wanted to work with children, but I, I remember tucking his card away in like a folder or, or something mm-hmm. and maybe uh, eight months later it's time to do another rotation and I thought oh maybe maybe I'll give this gentleman a call he was so um, responsive and um, I you know I enjoyed his talk and he was so informative which which was really ironic because Dr. Sherry is really a shy person <laughs> um, so for him to present so well and make this impression on me mm-hmm. uh, I called him and said um, can I come I just wanted to know about it. Can I just come learn from you? Can I come volunteer? Mm-hmm. And that's what I was going to do over the summer. And um, thinking he would just say, yeah, get your stuff. Get, come on. Um, he said, send me your Vita. <laughs> and I thought, okay, as soon as I put one together, <laughs> I'll shoot that over to you. Uh-huh. Um, so over the weekend, I work on this Vita that has, it really made me sit down and say, okay, what have you done during this time? Mm-hmm. And it, it, it let me know just how competitive uh, neuropsychology can right. can be because right. he didn't just say, all right, come follow me. Um, they were really selective about mm-hmm. who they would let come and study. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did that for a summer, and um, it counted as my, uh, at the time, the word was externship. Um, so it really was just a, like a summer practicum sure. um, and loved it. Mm-hmm. Like loved the marriage of science and psychology, I love the outcomes, the, the fact that um, people got better. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it was, the sense of success was just kind of, mm-hmm. um, I don't know, reinforcing, sure. I, I think. Uh, so from there, all, most of the coursework, every practicum, every externship from that point was neuropsych in nature, with the exception of one, but it, 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 it was, I was still kind of, interested in the forensics, and which I marry today in, in my practice. Um, so I was getting a, maybe 80% neuropsych and still doing about 20% forensics. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, but I knew when I went into the hospital and could see the research and the outcomes and the data and the stats that went with it, which I, I guess some people hate, but it, it, it really was reinforcing for me that mm-hmm. um, this works. You okay. do this and it works and it helps people mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and so from there I, I didn't I, I definitely didn't start this journey thinking I'm going to be a neuropsychologist mm-hmm. yeah most people don't no. that's why it's, it's very intriguing no. and very interesting no. um, there's been a uh, would you say there's been a upswing in the amount of attention paid to neuropsychology 
um, in the past few years here. I would say so, mm -hmm. yes. I definitely feel it on the, on the clinical practice side, sure. for sure. In terms yes. of the people contacting right. you yes. to, to do work. Why do you think that is? I, I think because of those outcomes. Mm -hmm. I think when there is a good, uh, I, well, I always feel uh, and have felt that psychology is in the sciences, especially being pre-med um, and being in, in kind of more of the hard sciences, that it was a soft science. And mm -hmm. we were always the uh, red-headed stepchild, so to speak. Um, but neuropsych is kind of this creme de la creme that marries the two of sure. we have the science and we have the background and we have the, the outcomes and the, the data to support what we do. And I think people are paying a, a, a attention to that, that it's not just um, a frou-frou kind of soft science, that mm -hmm. it's not just talk therapy, which works. Mm -hmm. um, but it, you could do more than than what most people think would. It's not just head injury, uh, and it's it, it's. It, I think it's a good again to use the word marriage between science and theory. Okay, so let's get into the nuts and bolts of, of okay. what is neuropsychology. When you think about um, how you would explain that to someone and help mm -hmm. them understand what it is and how it benefits, um, put it on a third grade level. How would you do that? <laughs> okay. <laughs> this complex thing, mm -hmm, just break it mm -hmm, down. So mm -hmm. that, so that. Well, I, I don't know if I'll do a good job with it, but I, I think if I had to explain it to a third grader, it is the study of why people do things, mm -hmm. um, which is behavior, mm -hmm. and what part of the brain is responsible for you thinking and behaving that way. Mm -hmm. So um, to raise it up a level, Sure. Um, so there are research studies and there's neuroimaging to kind of back up what you say when a person has a specific diagnosis and you say they are lacking this neurotransmitter or they have this anomaly in the brain you actually have say a picture of the brain that says see see this red spot or see this hole in the brain or mm -hmm. see this bump mm -hmm. where it's not only do um, it not only does it show up on paper but it shows up in many different avenues and the even though the person may believe it on paper, they definitely believe it when they're like, oh, okay, I see it on paper, I see it in their behavior, and I see it on this MRI or, or okay. what what, what happens. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't necessarily do that in my practice every day, right, but right. that is the, um, if you had, if I had to prove what I did, those are avenues that I could definitely use to, to say, um, here's why I made that diagnosis or here's why I made that clinical judgment. And when you say see it on paper, what do you mean when you say that? Testing. I do a good deal of testing. Okay. Um, Seventy percent what I do is neuropsych testing. So what does that involve? Can you break that down? Um, it's a very, uh, sometimes lengthy, not always, um, but very comprehensive um, battery of tests. So it's not just one test, it's probably several tests mm -hmm. in each little subset or subtest measures a different domain in the brain or a different thing that you would do or a different behavior. Mm -hmm. So some of the things that I tend to evaluate are language skills, memory skills, um, abstract reasoning, um, sometimes perspective memory. Can you remember to do these things in the future? Um, so sometimes motor skills, but then they have, um, I think that we take really crude measures of that, how, how strong you are, and really we're just looking for like lateralization, are you weaker on one side versus the other because mm -hmm. of a head injury or a stroke? Um, so the testing for that 
anywhere from five to eight hours. So it's a it's a pretty mm-hmm. long day mm-hmm. for the people that you see, and you still start it the way you would do any sort of psych eval with a pretty comprehensive interview. background. So yeah. the interviews are about an hour okay. um, themselves, mm-hmm. hour fifteen minutes, depending on how involved the person is, and um, I write up. A report based on those findings so that's the paper that okay. I'm talking about in the in the report I will say what I found in testing and okay. it typically will parallel well with whatever behaviors a person is seeing what may be seen on neuroimaging or or sometimes just what the person thought mm-hmm. of themselves like mm-hmm. I thought I always had um, a problem with that and again that's probably about 70% of, of what I do every day mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so a person has a stroke mm-hmm. or they're in an accident and, or they are older and they have maybe the onset uh, early onset of dementia right. um, these are the types of people that will come to you for Evaluation. evaluations yes okay yes. and so you do the interview you do the testing and that then tells you gives you a, one piece of the pie in terms of what's going on with this person and what needs to happen moving forward to help them deal with the issues that they're faced with correct mm-hmm. You can use the report for a few. Sometimes it's just validation for that person or the family who mm-hmm. may suspect early onset dementia or, or, or late onset. But the report um, can be used for things like disability determinations. Mm-hmm. Um, can that person return to the job they were doing? Are they fit for duty? Um, a lot of neuropsychologists, not me personally, but a lot of neuropsychologists are doing um, flight simulations, um, there's a lot that goes into being a pilot apparently and there's there's kind of this little um, subset, if you will, of neuropsychologists who evaluate things like reaction time and mm. visual perception. Right, right. Um, so it can be used for those things. I mostly use it for um, independent medical exams, disability determinations, and treatment recommendations and and, and that that going forward piece that you mentioned because some a lot of people know oh, I know I had a stroke I know I had a traumatic brain injury so the evaluation isn't to tell them that it's to tell them post injury what am I able to do mm-hmm. um, what capacity do I have how could I use that to be functional um, every day um, sometimes is it's for compensation for, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. those things um, and, and I think that piece is probably about 20% okay. of, of what I do. Yeah. So how beneficial are people finding um, when you're giving, this, giving them this information? Um, I, I, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think very, and the feedback that I get is, I, I have never done, um, I have never been a PR kind of person. They don't teach us that in school. Sure. And, um, I think most people will laugh when I say this, but I'm actually a pretty shy person, so I'm I'm I never been the one that's on the billboard or, right. or right. Um, and I've never really had to do a whole lot of PR kind of stuff. It mm-hmm. really has just been word of mouth, and what I get from um, the consumers is the report is comprehensive. Mm-hmm. And it, I, I try to write it for a third grader, or I let my husband read it and say, "Do you understand this? Or um, could could you follow my recommendations?" Who's not in the field? And I right. figure if he can, if he can, then everyone else can. So I think it's the report that I put out, my end product, um, that has gotten me 
business thus far, and and business is good. Business mm-hmm. is good. It doesn't mean that um, this is on the misfortune of other people that they've sure. had stroke and, and traumatic brain injuries. A lot of people don't recognize um, that they need a certain amount of of continued help and intervention, and sometimes that report helps them see, okay, maybe I can't mm-hmm. do that, or mm-hmm. maybe I do need to file for disability, right. or um, or diff- sometimes I just use the report for differential diagnosis. I just did a big case where um, the person had never been get- given just kind of a definitive diagnosis, went straight into the military, um, so it wasn't problematic at work, and and some of the nuances and his idiosyncrasies just kind of fit into his military lifestyle. Well, now that he's post-military, and those issues are interfering with civilian work, um, a new marriage, it was like nobody ever told you that you probably fit the criteria for X, Y, and Z, and where the family is nodding like, yes, we've been trying to say this for for years. Mm-hmm. It it landed mm-hmm. um, with the report of. Right, finally, okay. finally yeah. got it. Yeah, and and I, you know, not the best news, but beneficial mm-hmm. to him for disability reasons, um, entering couples therapy and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think so. I think they are open to hearing it. Um, okay, okay, that's a good thing. I think so. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, the Asperger's um, take on things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There's been, again, a groundswell in terms of people recognizing, mm-hmm. whereas I'd say maybe 30, 40 years ago, mm-hmm. people didn't have the awareness of what Asperger's was, and they just right. kind of pushed people off in the corner or mm-hmm. considered them a little different, right. um, a little touched, we might say, <laughs> in the community. Um, but now people are understanding that that mm-hmm. is an actual diagnosis, and yeah. there are things that we can do yes to help people um, that have this diagnosis. Can you say, uh, talk a little bit about um, what you've seen with that, how you've worked with those people, and Mm -hmm. kind of what the benefit has been? Uh, So when I came to Houston, um, I taught for maybe four or five years, and from there, the first clinical job that I have post-license was um, at the Harris Center. Currently, it's called the Harris Center. Formerly, it was Um, MHMRA, the Mental Health and Mental Retardation Authority of Harris County, Um, and I was on the MR side. So Mm -hmm. specifically my job was um, person to work with persons who had um, intellectual and developmental disorders and persons who were on on the spectrum, the autism Mm -hmm. spectrum. So Mm -hmm. I saw quite a few persons with the diagnosis of um, autism spectrum or Asperger's high functioning. Mm -hmm. Um, Now the neuropsych it was a small component when you work inside an, an agency because there's only so much you can do and only so much time you can you know, devote to those individuals. And even though there is a swell, I think the swell has come from the understanding. So when one person has that diagnosis and another family member says, hey, my child has similar characteristics, similar behaviors, maybe I should have them evaluated and tested too. Mm-hmm. So the, I don't think the numbers have changed. I don't think the prevalence of the disorder has changed. Right. I think it is the um, definitive diagnosis and the coming forward and the acknowledgement and the nod to, yes, that's that's what, what that is. So I, what we saw at MHMRA was 
people coming in and saying, I think my child may, and, and can you do an evaluation for it? Um, and I, I, that was my job. Like my part as a part of that team was to assign the, the diagnosis, mm-hmm. which can sometimes be difficult. Um, more times than not, it is, it's, it's because like the persons tend to have a high intellect and we don't, families, schools, um, principals don't equate a psychological disorder um, that is not outwardly manifest all the time. Um, so basically, think if you're smart, yeah, then you, you don't. Right, to, right, right, right. You ought to be able to handle it. Yeah, if you have a you know 109 IQ, then mm. you should not be afraid of water. Exactly. Um, which sometimes is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the understanding of one that. It is a real diagnosis, and two, it doesn't look the same in everybody. Sure, um, sure. That has been, I don't know, that's a hard thing. I think it's a hard thing across the field in general is when a person says, well, I know someone with autism, and they don't do thus, thus and so. And mm-hmm. I, it's, it's hard to get a family member or, or an adult who hasn't been diagnosed their whole life to understand that, well, you don't do this one thing, but you do these other four things um, and to get them to understand the dog can have ticks and fleas <laughs> he does have an IQ right. but right. he but he also he also has no friends right. like or, or whatever the case may be um, so it that's kind of a difficult diagnosis to, to work with because mm-hmm. you're always met with some you don't get the nod like you do with head injury and stroke because you have that paper and pencil, you have that MRI, you have that science behind it. Mm-hmm. The science is a little bit more fluid when it comes to things like autism and Asperger's. Sure. You know, you, can, you, you can't pull up an MRI and say, well, they have that one wiggle um, in the brain. Mm-hmm. In fact, there was a symposium I went to here in Houston where, the, where this clinician was saying the opposite, saying that there is no such thing, saying there was no such thing as ADHD. Yes. Yes. It's autism? Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. There's no science. There's nothing. This person was saying that there's there's no brain anomalies, so it doesn't it doesn't exist. Mm. And yeah, it was very, very interesting. Interesting is, is that's the word. Um, so when you're fighting against things like that, mm-hmm. <laughs> it makes it difficult for you to um, do your job and do it effectively. Mm-hmm. So you you really gotta put a lot of science behind it to ump up your um, right. hypothesis. Right. So let's go back a bit and mm-hmm. have you give our listeners a really good understanding of what autism and what autism is, how mm-hmm. it differs from Asperger's, mm-hmm. um, and sort of come some of the things they should look out for um, okay. if they think somebody might uh, be on the uh, spectrum. Okay. So... Um, We'll just go. recently, I want to say in 2017, the diagnosis was collapsed. The spectrum of autism is called the autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. So there used to be three distinct um, diagnoses: PDD, pervasive developmental disorder, autism, and Asperger's. Now the three of those collapsed is just called the autism spectrum. So everyone would would if you so showed signs or characteristics of those diagnoses, you would be assigned autism spectrum disorder. They don't piece it out, so to speak. So the Asperger sometimes was called high-functioning autism. So it's kind of the 
upper end of the spectrum, if you will, um, where the PDD was the lower end of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the reason for the change was people who were diagnosed and who were on either end of the spectrum, they weren't getting the services that they that they needed. So PDD was was seen as you know something that may not exist or if or people didn't understand it or even didn't even know what those words were mm-hmm. and people who may fit the criteria for um, Asperger's again they tend to be verbal they tend to be highly intelligent and they won't get the they won't get any the services because you see a person with a 125 IQ and you're thinking they, they don't need these services so it was kind of just those people in the middle who were um, benefiting I guess from the services so that's why they collapsed the, the diagnosis. The hallmark characteristics are the same uh, across the board. It is a developmental disorder, meaning there is a, a gap in abilities, typically in socialization and language and daily functioning between persons on the spectrum. Mm-hmm. And as you get older, the, the developmental part, the gap gets wider. Mm-hmm. So as that person ages, and when they're younger, they're three and four, you may say, hmm, something's wrong. They may be a little behind, but they'll catch up and you don't notice it as much. But when they become, say, 10, you you know it's, it's a wider gap as mm-hmm. they get older and mm-hmm. you say, well, they're not, they can't make friends. They can't keep friends. Mm-hmm. They've regressed. Um, you may see developmental markers that every other 10-year-old has that that 10-year-old doesn't. And again, by the time they hit college, um, the, the anxiety may play a part into it. Again, they still don't have friends. They don't know how to talk to other people. They feel uncomfortable in social situations. Um, there is a gamut of, of symptoms. And you say, um, explain to the listeners if they had someone in their family, just be mindful that it, there is a gamut. If you feel like something is wrong and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, then listen to them. It, something probably is wrong. But it's not the same from child to child, even if they're in the same family. So I, I, I don't want listeners to think, well, because the person doesn't do this one thing, then they don't, then they don't, miss the, they don't meet the criteria. Right. Um, if the person has good socialization skills but still feels uncomfortable, that, that's still a problem. May not meet full criteria, but it's still a problem in and of itself. Um, and I think in terms of intervention, the best thing for them to do is seek a psychologist. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think the schools, um, and again, you just I'm married to an educator, mm-hmm. um, and we, we have this conversation at the dinner table often, is the schools really aren't equipped, just like I'm not equipped on the education piece. Right. Um, he, my husband tends to know something is wrong, but he can't put his finger on it. They're just not uh, trained and versed enough to to know. They know something is wrong. So, and I'm saying that to say usually it's in school mm-hmm. when things are noticed, um, but it's not the school that t- can diagnose and it's not the school that can always give the appropriate intervention. So I do think that the person needs to take the next step and see a psychologist outside mm-hmm. of the school mm-hmm. setting. So it's, it's noticed in school because that's where a lot of socialization occurs. Mm-hmm. And so... And that's where children spend most of their day. Sure. Um, it's where you have references every day so there you know there's a, a class of 22 people you mm-hmm. can compare that child to 22 other people when sometimes if that's your first and only child you think something is wrong but you're not sure you don't have any other children to compare them to but in school you can see the discrepancy because there are 
20 plus other kids mm-hmm. to, to compare that child mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. Okay. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you find that there is, once you make a diagnosis, or is there a reluctance um, for people to have their child diagnosed with mm-hmm. autism and Asperger's? Always. Hmm. Always. Okay. Um, and I think as, as a parent, I'm a mother. You don't want anything to be wrong with your child. Mm-hmm. But whether you believe it and whether you subscribe to it, if something is wrong, then there is something wrong with your child. Whether you want to believe it in you or you want it or not. Mm-hmm. I think the best thing is knowing and then know, finding out what to do about it. Because mm-hmm. it's going to be there. You can't wish it away. Um, there's always the um, stigmatism of a label. And I hear people say, well, I don't want to label right. my child. Right. But um, another piece of what I do here, and we, didn't, we hadn't talked a whole lot about that, is I, um, I go into the prisons. There's so much pathology, and there's such a big need for neuropsych in the prison. Um, and you take this very detailed history, and the problems were always there. The characteristics and the symptoms were always there. Even sometimes the schools will say, yeah. um, the, I'll hear a, 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 a client, I don't want to call him in me, say, you know, they told my mom that I need to, to, I had this evaluation, but then you recognize that nothing happened after the evaluation. They didn't know the results of the evaluation, but mom didn't want that label. Mm-hmm. So then now the person is incarcerated. Right. Um, where that's probably the worst label you can possibly get. Sure. And there's something else that we could have done about it before you got to, to that point. So mm-hmm. I, I, I think it's detrimental and it's not fair to a parent to not acknowledge what's wrong and treat it um, because it will rear its ugly head and usually it's easier to treat as a child than it is to even prove that you have that problem as an incarcerated adult. Mm-hmm. What I'm finding is a lot of judges are saying, well, if something is wrong, why are we just finding out about it now that he's, you know, committed capital murder? Right. Um, and it's hard to answer that question to yeah. them. It's like, what do you say to a judge? I, 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 I do my thing. I, I do the paperwork. I take the background history. I try to connect those dots. But it, it's a much easier sale in court when you can say, and all these school documents say the same, um, mm. but a lot of times they won't have that because they never went for intervention. So I'm I'm hearing a couple of competing elements here, uh, or, or maybe not not necessarily competing, but diverging elements. Mm-hmm. Um, number one, and this is why we're doing this podcast to begin with, to to reduce some of the stigma associated with mental health, mm-hmm. um, particularly amongst our community of Black mm-hmm. folks, right? Mm-hmm. Because um, there's been that history, and we've talked a lot about right. where that comes from and why that is there. Then when we get to the next level of, well, I don't want my child to be carrying this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And so then that follows, right? right. Um, but then yeah. you get to the lack of adequate resources in the school system mm-hmm. um, and people kind of pushing our kids through and not giving them the resources they need that can actually make them better. Right. Um, people that don't really care about our students. Uh, and we see all types of incidents happening. There was a, a six-year-old girl arrested in school, <laughs> arrested, put handcuffs on and taken by the police officer down and processed even wow. in Florida. This happened a few days ago. Wow. Um, this is un... Like, this should not be happening. No. 
Um, and doesn't need to happen. Right. <laughs> like, if you can't find a better way to manage this child, mm-hmm. um, who later we find out that she has, she does have some mental health issues. So, to your point, right, instead of giving her the right. treatment and the help that she needs, they are criminalizing her right. and, and giving her right. all types of mental issues that are going to impact her down the line as right. well. Right. The trauma of even having to go through this. Right. <sighs> right. So now. I thought that stuff only happened in Texas. <laughs> no, it's happening all over the, in this climate. It's happening all over the country. Um, but it's, uh, So you're seeing these people in the prison system who could have been helped right. much earlier on. Right. And they weren't. Right. Hmm. And some were. Um some some were, mm-hmm. but maybe not to the degree that they should have. Mm-hmm. They may have been misdiagnosed, or um, they went for two mandated sessions and and, and never followed up. Here in Texas, sometimes language is 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 an issue, and and that's the problem with with the follow up. But they, some people don't get the intervention, and some people get the wrong. Mm-hmm. Intervention. More times than not, they just don't get it at all. Mm-hmm. And, and apples don't fall far from trees. A lot of times, the parents have mental health issues, and they, and then I, I guess their rationale is, well, I never got help in right. that. Um, so the cycle yeah. continues. Right. Multi generational trauma. Correct. Yeah. And and I'm also following that those apples. So the parent that has mental illness, for whatever reason, I. I Socially, I think maybe they run in the same circle, but will procreate with someone who also has awesome. mental health issues. Yeah. So you just really got this this gumbo yeah. of of mental health issues that's just exacerbated with with the child. Because there are parents who will say, "Well, I have that too, and I didn't, you know." But but your issues are now coupled with this person's issues. Right. So we you know we have the manifestation of that. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think um, part of the reason why, like two people who have autism, might be attracted to each other? Do you see that happening? Well, that to be too? honest with you, one of the one of um, or not even just autism, any other type no, of the, uh, there are two in particular, but they're, but they're not spectrum ones. But I know a part uh, which was a, actually I think it was a good thing um, that the Harris Center typically does. I don't know if they still do it. I'm not there anymore, but we would put together socials Mm -hmm. because they were impeded in that area. Um, so we would have dances and, uh, get togethers. And there's a, there's a, there's a place called coffee house Mm -hmm. where they would meet people that they felt a little more comfortable talking with. And if they, um, reviewed as a little peculiar. It was okay. It was kind of a non-judgmental area. Um, I can't say if there were a lot of hookups from okay. from there, but um, it's definitely one of the things that we did was to... Um, I think the, the precipitant of that was to just show that there are other people like you. Mm-hmm. It didn't necessarily mean there, there are other people like you and that's who you should be with. Right. Um, I, I think that may have just been a, sure. a byproduct okay. um, of that. But yes... Just people hook up in mental health facilities, pick people. Yeah, substance um, abuse so, facilities. Yeah, 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 it, it yeah. happens. Like attracts. So, is there any mm-hmm. science behind people hooking up and then their progeny and or their children? What that, what the outcomes are for them? 
I have not done any of my own personal research, and I am not so versed in that that research. But just from what I see in in the one of the things I do is take a really detailed developmental history. I ask you every, sometimes way too many questions than they want they want to ask, and usually the the, the thread of mental health issues goes back to grandma and grandpa may have been undiagnosed but you can you can you see the the pathology sure. and i don't know if they if those persons those diagnoses just think well that's right or that's my reality um but they they certainly um gravitate to right. each other right, right. will will say and there is science um not any that i can quote where it when you put the two together they um it's not a it's it's not a good thing. Okay. Um, where if you have a fifty percent chance of getting, say, a bipolar disorder, if you have one parent that has bipolar mm-hmm. disorder, you right. double that instance if if you both parents to, have right. mental health issues. So a similar kind of thing, mm-hmm. but you know, you're not sure what the numbers are. But right. It certainly right. DNA DNA is DNA. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think. Um, even though there's research on on only a few disorders, bipolar disorders is well documented. Um, schizophrenia, actually, autism is too. It's just that the outcomes um, they they really haven't formed this. You know, there's still the controversy of nature versus nurture. Um, so it's not as concrete as some of the others, but I think everything has a genetic component. Sure. You, you can't come from another person and not um, take that with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and if mental health is one of the issues that your family has, then yes, you are more prone to have it for sure. Right, mm-hmm. right, okay, good. So if you had to kind of summarize and give people a sense of the benefits of coming to see someone like you and when they should do that mm-hmm. and how to not be afraid of the process. Hmm. Um, could you give us some uh, a summation of that? I, I think I could. Um, I think any intervention is as early as possible. As a parent, if you think that something is wrong, um, especially if you have the funds to do it, if it is just a copay that you would have to pay, and and you find out nothing is wrong, then you're you're just out of the twenty five dollars or, or sure. whatever it is. But when you suspect that something is wrong, um, under the mental health umbrella, earlier is always better. Early intervention for anything, mm-hmm. cancer, um, AIDS, a cold, you name it. The sooner you do it, um, the better. Right. Um, and I, there is no, I don't know, there's really no benefit of waiting. Things just get exacerbated without treatment. So whatever you were going to know it, if your child is six, you'll just know that at eight, it would have just gotten worse right. at, at eight. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know, I don't know why there is a stigma um, per se. Uh, I, I know what the, the research says and I know how society feels. And again, I feel like psychology is the red-haired stepchild because if there was anything else, like I, when people, when I have patients who um, are court-ordered to come, they, they, they really don't want to come. They're, mm-hmm. just, they're, kicking it, they're coming, kicking and screaming. Right. And I tell them, I, I don't want this to be a waste of your time because I don't want it to be a waste of my time. Mm-hmm. If, if you um, don't want to be here, let's just talk about 
you know, why that is. Let's talk about the benefits of what you would would get out of it. Um, and I think that if a person understands that, because if they had a cold, or if they had AIDS, or if they had cancer, they would be running to the to the doctor. Right, right, right. Mental illness is just as pervasive, just as severe, and just as chronic, and sometimes just as fatal. Mm-hmm. Um, and same thing about meds. You know, if, if the recommendation is to go get meds, they're hesitant to go get the four dollar antidepressant. But again, if I told you that you had AIDS or cancer or cold. You'd, you'd go get the trimedic from Walgreens immediately. Right, right. You, and if you had to take that pill every day to, to live with cancer, you would. This is what this pill is for you, this, this antidepressant. Because one of the questions is always, do I have to take this for the rest of my life? Well, maybe. <laughs> but if you have to take that to survive and function, like, like why wouldn't you? That's the part I kind of, I don't, I don't get and I kind of summarize that. Because I think once I put that medical model to it, then mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, well, maybe I will go get the $4 antidepressant. Um, so to, to answer your questions, just just do it. <laughs> just, mm-hmm. <laughs> just make the appointment and just do it. If it benefits, then we, then, then we all win. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think most people are scared to seek it out. They don't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. I, I think they think we'll have them, and sometimes I guess I do have on my white lab coat, but I think they think it'll be sterile and the person will be judging um, and that I would be um, impractical and, and non-judgmental when I think I'm the opposite of all of those things because, um, I, you know, I'm not married to you, mm-hmm. you're not my child coming right. in, so I, I don't... Um, I'm vested, but I'm vested for all the right reasons. I'm right. not vested because um, a lot of times I'm not necessarily getting anything out of this. I, I do third-party payment, so it's not even like you're paying me to, right. to do this. So right. let's just do the work and and get your help. Um, and, and a lot of times those court-order ones, I'll tell them, give me three times. If you don't get something out of this by the third time, we'll part ways. I will write that letter to the judge, and you don't have to ever do this again. Mm-hmm. That has happened once hmm. since two thousand and two. In the last eight years, it's happened one time. Hmm. Okay, so your record speaks for itself. <laughs> I try. I try. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, good. Well, this has certainly been very enriching. I've I've learned quite a bit well, talking to you today, so I'm sure our listeners have as well. Um, you want to give some last words and say how people can get in touch with you, particularly in the Houston area. Do you do anything outside of Houston? Um, I, I, I do. Most of the work I do outside of Houston is forensic work. Okay. Um, and oh, we didn't talk about that. Well, say a little bit about the forensics. The, the forensics I do is contractual, hmm. meaning... Um, so what, what that involves? It, it, that involves me going into the... Typically, me going into the prisons. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm usually retained by an attorney, okay. um, their attorney. I do it for, um, I guess I have a little bit of, 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 my Vita says that I have done more defense cases, but I will do it for both both sides because I think the law is the law and I really sure. um, think that psychology fits in to just kind of level, level those things out. Um, and I'm not a forensic um, psychologist, so I don't want to get those two mixed up. I do neuropsychology in a forensic setting. 
I am a neuropsychologist. Okay. Would you testify? You, 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 I do. Okay. I do, but I don't testify to things that are forensic in nature. The forensic psychologist is the person that will say their state of mind at the time. Right. Competency. I will. I'll do competency, but typically competency comes up in my neuropsych evaluation when they can't do those things. Okay. Um, so I don't go in as a forensic psychologist. Is just my findings weigh on the forensic outcome. Okay. Um, yeah. So, and I tend to work for a small subset of attorneys. I mean, I don't work with every attorney. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone doesn't have the same ethics I'm finding. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I never want to um, put myself out there right. as I am the psychologist that you paid to say what you want me right. to say. Right. That is not at all what I do. Yeah. And I think that... Um, the people that I work for understand that mm-hmm. um, because sometimes I, my report doesn't say what you want right. it to say. Right. Uh, and and typically, and that's how I get those those the referrals is from other attorneys. Because mm-hmm. um, they so, know you're going to do a good, honest job. And and sometimes sometimes they'll pay me and say, "Shred that. This never happened. Right. <laughs> like, right. That's not going to help me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, but I did it. Um, so that is that's I I do that quite a. When I'm not in this office, um, I'm usually traveling to um, mostly state facilities. I've definitely done some out-of-state um, issues, but those tend to be a little bit more. Those are, those are tip of those capital murder okay. cases, and it's usually someone who has a diagnosis that is neuropsychological in nature. Sometimes well documented, sometimes not, and then my job is to go and put the, the pieces of the puzzle together to say. Um, it, it's never guilty or innocence. It's just if they did commit this, are there any mitigating factors, mm-hmm. precipitating factors? Um, and usually my piece is used for sentencing because a lot of times a person has committed a crime. Right. Um, but, you know, if sometimes if they had gotten the treatment and the intervention, that never, that never would have happened. Sure. Um, and that's getting to be quite common with all of the mass shootings and everything else. We, uh, mental health is getting some notoriety, but it's 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 in a capacity. It's like it's a day late and a dollar short. Right. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so that that's the forensic sure. piece that I do. Okay. Well, good. Well, tell the people how to get in touch with you. Uh, um. So I'm I'm in Northwest Houston. Um. To be honest with you, most of my work is contractual work. Mm-hmm. You can visit the website. It's www.neuropsych-associates.com. Um, but I rarely see individual patients just because all this other stuff keeps me mm-hmm. keeps me busy. So, yeah. so busy. Yeah. Um, but I do have a very robust referral list. Um, I have personal friends, and there are wonderful colleagues in the area that if I can't do the work, I can definitely refer you to somebody okay. who can. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to us and educating you. us about this uh, neuropsychology work that and you And that's do. just a little piece. There's so yeah. much that other people do, but uh, yeah. just a little bit of it. Yeah, we'll have to do a part two at some point. <laughs> okay. Come back to Houston. All righty. So thanks again for joining us on Black Folks Do Therapy, and we'll see you for our next episode. In closing, I want to remind you to always be a critical thinker as it relates to your mental health and well-being. 
We always want to inspire you to consciously question your choices to ensure that you are doing those things that bring you happiness and fulfillment. Please don't forget to subscribe to our channel and share the information with others who might benefit. Connect with us on Twitter at HeartMindHealer and visit our Facebook and Instagram pages at Alashe Center, A-L-A-S-E Center. Our website is alashe.net, A-L-A-S-E.net. And feel free to contact us for any consultations or questions you might have. Things that I might be missing. Running too fast to stop to listen